Hi there, good afternoon, here for another episode of Coffee, and today I just want to give a disclaimer, this live stream may discuss trauma of all sorts to include all types of abuse. Viewers and listeners may find it unsettling and triggering. The guests on our live streams reflect a diverse set of values, morals, and ethics that may not reflect the values, morals, and ethics of the misfit Amish. If this live stream causes you distress, please seek support from your trusted folks and qualified mental health professionals as needed, and also cease listening until you are ready to listen again. With that being said, I'd like to welcome Dr. Tara Mitchell to have a conversation. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you doing today? Oh, peachy. Just peachy? just peachy. So one of the things that I've encountered frequently is this mentality that something or anything is better than nothing. And I wanted to have a recorded conversation about this because for those who are unfamiliar, Tara has a background in working with marginalized communities. If you would like to expand upon that, please do so. Um, well, my background, I have, I'm a legal psychologist and I have, um, done research with, taught, um, do community outreach and service, working with people who are experiencing or have experienced violence and often people who experience violence in our society are those with the least amount of power. And so I have worked with people related to racism, sexism, uh, cis-sexism or homophobia, which I don't really like that phrase, um, as well as cis-sexism and have also um, worked with groups relating to domestic violence, interpersonal violence, child abuse, human trafficking. Okay. So when I start talking about the mentality of anything is better than nothing, what's the very first thing that comes to mind? I just want to know because I'm nosy. Actually, the first thing that comes to mind is is laziness, actually. Oh. Um, you know, I want to, I guess I'll start with in any movement that is just beginning. We often, we, we don't know a lot. We are guided by our belief that something needs to improve. But as we learn more, as we accumulate knowledge, there is no longer nothing. And so often when I hear someone saying something is better than nothing or anything is better than nothing, they are using it to excuse or, or justify not relying on the knowledge that has accumulated and just doing whatever they feel like. Um, now, 
I should say in psychology, that's what I've tended to see in, you know, in things like public health and goal setting, you know, walking 5,000 steps a day is better than walking no steps a day. So in, you know, in that sense of goal setting, making some progress towards your goals is make better than making no progress. But in my fields, what we're often hearing it referred to is someone who does something less effective, does something not based on what we've learned about a problem or an issue and just says, well, at least I did something. Something's better than nothing. Would that be relatable to, like, how does that relate to advocacy as far as, like, providing support for people who are already vulnerable in a very vulnerable position? And if you give them information that maybe is part of what they need to know, but it has some very interesting content that isn't based on the evidence and, as you said, the best practices that we know of at this point. How does that relate? How does that cross over and relate to that? Well, and I think there, there are two things going on there. One, sometimes something is actually worse than nothing. If you are providing people, particularly vulnerable people who don't necessarily have access to all of the information that is out there, if you are providing them with information that is incorrect or information that um, blames them rather than um, holding perpetrators or entire societies and systems responsible, you're actively harming them. In, in which case, nothing would have been better. But in the other case where you have, you have a mix, I guess, of information, some of it good, some of it not so good, while you may not be actively harming them, in the same way that giving them misinformation would, you are hindering them. And so, you know, to me, in advocacy, we never stop learning, ever. Um, you know, I think about, I think about stalking. Um, and particularly with just this explosion um, of technology in you know, the past 10 years, every year, there is some new form of technology and really understanding the role that technology can play in stalking cases. 
you if you want to keep up with that, you've got to make a concerted effort to to make that part of your continuing education. And so if we are not continually learning, we run the risk of providing information to people or providing support to them in ways that we have discovered are no longer the most effective. That's hindering them. Again, it may be unintentional, but it is hindering people's growth to not rely on the best information we have available at the time. So then, if somebody wants to go into advocacy and they create a poster that says, no one should ever touch your private parts, is that evidence-based information and is that harming or hindering? It might have been evidence-based. Again, back in the, the 70s or 80s. Um, it is not now. And I think, you know, people who would do such a thing, they probably are well-intentioned. Um, but, well, one, when you tell children never, then you eliminate all possibility of nuance, like a doctor's office and, um, medical procedures you also, in essence, say that the only thing that is a problem is if, and I'm going to put these in quotes, private parts are touched. You know, what, what if it's not a breast or genital? What if it's rubbing a child's shoulders? Is that acceptable? Or not? What if it's over the clothes versus under the clothes? You know, and so there is so much nuance in child sexual abuse and there's so much nuance in how children are groomed to find things certain um, acceptable or to think they deserve what is happening. That if you aren't keeping up with the best ways to communicate with children in age-appropriate ways, 
you may fall back on that all or nothing language that I remember hearing when I was growing up. Um, and that does become a hindrance. Okay. So with that being said, when you start talking about, you know, it may not be, um, it may be over the clothes. There are so many ways that children are being groomed. And as Jimmy Hinton refers to it as testing, the perpetrator is often testing to see how far he can get. Mm-hmm. But when you are a child and you're told these your breasts, your chest, your buttocks, your genitalia, your all of that, that is your private area and nobody ever touches it. But then when somebody maybe rubs your shoulder and they're testing to see how the adults, they're grooming you to accept the touch from them. But they're also checking to see if the adults around that 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 child have a problem Mm -hmm. with that and how those adults react. And if those adults don't react, sometimes children get molested right in front of people. Mm -hmm. And... It also doesn't take into account as a child, you can literally feel how gross that is, but it doesn't teach children the language or even the ability to have personal bodily autonomy in that scenario. Correct. And even when it comes to all of that being encompassed, and when it goes back to, when people go back to that same mindset of anything is better than nothing, But then when they're sitting in a doctor's office and now all of a sudden, let's just say, hypothetically, there are a million different reasons why a doctor might need to examine one of the private parts of a child. Mm -hmm. And when you teach them, nobody ever touches them there, but you don't teach them any kind of nuance around that. How do you think that child feels at that point? How do you think, do you think that affects like their ability to even understand or begin understanding what consent is? Or do we start teaching personhood and bodily autonomy as a child? Where where does that start? I think it should start as early as possible. Um, Because one of the other things that, that doesn't really get brought up with the the private parts conversation. Um, And I'm really going to admit this is not my area of research, but when you start talking about people, human beings, as parts I am my breasts. I am my vagina. I am my butt. I'm not my eyes. I'm, you know, not my brain. I'm not my legs. I am these parts. And by not seeing children as whole humans, 
and, and let's face it, is not seeing adults as whole humans. We are in the name of trying to help contributing to the objectification of human beings. I'm talking all ages, all human beings, because we are we're focusing solely on these parts, not the child, not the teenager, not the adult, but the body parts, rather than teaching children, teenagers, adults, that they are more than the sum of their parts. You know, and part of that is if we all just think of certain body parts as being sexual and we don't talk about the person as a whole, it is easy for caregivers to miss what is happening in front of them. It makes it difficult. You know, children are very literal. So how do they flip on the dime when it's time to go to the doctor? And what if they have an allergic reaction or a rash and their shirt needs to be removed. And, and trying in that moment to explain to the child, well, when I told you no one should ever see or touch XYZ, I didn't mean that your doctor couldn't. Then, scarily enough, if your doctor's the one abusing you. And so child's like, okay, carve out this exception. But then the doctor gets to do whatever. Uh-huh. So, you know, trying to teach a child this hard and fast, never rule. But then on the fly in moments of very well could be distress. Like if there is a medical emergency, trying to carve out that, well, I didn't mean never like that. As opposed to from the beginning, in age-appropriate ways, talking 
to the child on a regular basis, just making it a regular part of how how you parent or support the children in your care. Um, And I think, you know, again, age appropriate is interesting. Because are we providing caregivers with age appropriate resources? Are we providing them with the support to really have those good, safe conversations in an age-appropriate way. And I don't know that we are. I have a question. Hmm? Um, Isn't it also sexualizing children if we're objectifying them and reducing certain body parts to only sexual organs. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just wanted to clarify that. And, and, I, then, and I think we do sexualize children. I, I think we do too. And I think you see it in like society, mainstream Western society far too often. But I also think there's so many people who feel like no 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 we don't we don't teach nuance we just tell them never yeah because maybe for them that's what they needed to hear or what they wanted to hear what they wish somebody would have told them or it but is then, what they were told or it is what they were told but then the other question that i have is how does that affect long-term children? Like, what if, like, okay, so nobody ever touches you there, but then they get married and they're expected to have intimate relations and sexual relations with their partner. How does that affect them? I think there is so much about life that we just we kind of think some age is hit or some milestone hits and the switch gets flipped mm-hmm. and people just know but is that um, reality again not my research area but i'm going with no based on the college students that i work with <laughs> You know, like drinking age. Magically, twenty-one now. I used to be eighteen. People are going to one be biologically able to handle alcohol and to have the psychological ability to handle it appropriately. You know, eighteen. Or when they start college, they've, they've never made a decision because their, their parents weren't comfortable with them making decisions um, about 
about major things in their lives. So they come to college and they bad things happen because they don't know how to make those day-to-day decisions. Um, you know, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm actually less concerned with, you know, the child who grows up and, and gets married and is supposed to have a, a functional relationship. I'm more concerned with the 12 year old who is starting to, to date and, you know, knows nothing. That part. Because the parents, caregivers have felt uncomfortable having those conversations in, in age appropriate ways. Um, I mean, this has been, this has been years ago, but there was, there was an outbreak of syphilis. I think it was in a Georgia middle school. Cause the kids were getting together and having parties and they had no clue. And so there was a syphilis outbreak and they were 12. So I think that when when we go with just that absolute language and, and we think it's done, we've said never let anybody touch these parts. The end. I will tell you as a parent, um, I find it important to... And the things that I learned is that it is important to have repetitive, open dialogue and maintain a line of communication with your children about consent, bodily autonomy, privacy, and what things we know about safe sex and how that can possibly affect them. Yeah, the the, the not having that which is, is a little bit ironic, the nothing. <laughs> yeah. Is so harmful. Because it does not prepare the child who is growing into a young adult who will become an adult to make healthy decisions and And it's almost like there's there's two kind of things going on. You know, I think sometimes we as as the adults, like my my sister has a child. She, she's great mother. I'm just trying to be an aunt. And occasionally mildly terrified that I'm going to do something. That's, that's going to be wrong or, or to mess up. Mm-hmm. But the flip side of that is 
if we don't try, like, I have read stuff, like, so that I can be the best aunt possible. If we don't try to do our best to provide these children with the highest quality information out there, then we're kind of failing these children. And um, something came up across the screen, you know, about all of these college kids who got pregnant. Yeah, they they walk into situations totally unprepared Mm -hmm. because the people in their lives didn't prepare them. Yes, absolutely. And I think that also goes back to like part of the information that's also missing when we just say something is better than nothing. We're we're removing us from having ourselves from having to do any work to be able to provide good information. You know, and and so on one hand, I'm talking about don't let your college kids walk onto a college campus and not understand certain things, say something. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if that something is not well-informed, then, okay, it might buffer some of the bad stuff just a little, but it might actively cause harm. Yes. Because if you are not providing the highest possible quality information, then what you say may actually lead them into harmful situations or may leave them unprepared for the reality they are about to face, you know, and, and Oh, go ahead. You can finish your thought, but I have a question. Well, it's, and it's, it's more trying to, you know, think of, of a scenario where, you know, and this is relatively mild, Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had college students who have been told, you know, unlike high school, like if, if you skip your high school classes, you can you know, be picked up for truancy. If you do the same for college, nothing happens. It's true. Technically, of course, you're going to fail. And these classes are not free. That you know, part, so, though. Yeah. Um, somebody's paying for. Every action has a reaction, whether negative, positive, but also sometimes 
the thing is, is that there are things in life that we experience that are not necessarily negative or positive, or maybe there were things that we experienced that we actually learned and grew from. And so when you start talking about having consequences for their actions or reactions, like you're, if, if you fail so many college classes, you're probably going to like have to repay for the course or you might get kicked out of college eventually like it just depends you might run out of money to go to college for some people like the people that I'm, I'm 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 surrounded by we are poor we don't we don't have a lot of money to go to college but for some people that is completely unfathomable that i couldn't just at almost 40 years old just go off to college like they don't grasp the reality of not having funds to go to college. But then there's the whole part of like, what I have to ask is this. So when we talk about evidence-based, like best practice information based on what we know now, how do we acquire that information? And where does it come from? And quite frankly, I have learned from many people, people I don't even remember their names from. Why? Because they challenge my perception. And because they maybe explain things in a way that didn't come across is is from a very privileged vantage point, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Or as in like, you know, I got a PhD and I know more about your culture than you do. Or as in like, you know, when I tell you that to me, when you endorse the sacred subject as a recommended resource, you are actively causing harm to my relatives. You are actively causing harm. That in and of itself is very clear communication because of the contents of those booklets. And so do you think that people who are PhD holders in mental health professionals, um, part of the reason why they do that is because they think anything is better than nothing? All right. People who are PhD holders are supposed to have done research. Like that's part of how you get your PhD, regardless of the field, regardless of, of the definition that research has in your field, like your most common research tactics, you got to do some research to get a PhD. So People who have a PhD are supposed to be capable of and were able to do research into a particular area in order to get that PhD. And, you know, we are told one of the reasons that I will say, okay, I have not, this is not my area. I have not done research in this is we are supposed to stay in our lane. Like I'm not an astrophysicist. I know nothing about quantum mechanics. I should not be talking about quantum mechanics. I'm not a clinician. 
I should not be diagnosing people. And so, you know, <laughs> we, we stay within kind of our area of expertise and that, that may expand, but it expands through research. So one part of it for me is no, PhDs should not be thinking anything is better than nothing or something is better than nothing because our degrees are built on researching. Okay. And, and as far as that goes, I'm a certified professional coder and a certified professional medical auditor. So part of what I do sometimes involves like looking at people's credentials and what they're qualified to do. And I, and I completely get that point about them. PhD holders are required to do research. They're required to expand their knowledge base. However, again, is that possibly indicative of a PhD holder subscribing to the idea that something is better than nothing? Honestly, I'm, I'm more cynical than that. <laughs> really? Just because we are clearly capable of doing research. Do we continue to actually do research on all of the things we say? Probably not. Um, research is not easy. Takes time. But if you have people recommending things outside of their field, recommending things outside of their areas, I'm going to want to know if they've actually done research on what they are recommending. Like, sacred subjects is not something you bop down to the corner store and pick up. You have to be aware enough, inside enough of Amish culture to know where to go to get it. Or order it, as the case may actually be. Just because we have PhD after a name doesn't mean we're all ethical. Okay, so what if you have it listed with the information of where to acquire the sacred subjects and you're endorsing it as a PhD holder? Does that mean you've read it? But you're endorsing it. So either is that person then either going with anything is better than nothing mindset and I have to, or I have to meet them halfway. Or are they deliberately just not giving a flying F about actual welfare of children, even though they purport to be giving a flying F about the actual welfare of children? I would go. Well, again, I'm cynical. So, 
some some days I'd say number three. Um, oh my! But I could see number two just as much as number one. The I haven't read it, but somebody told me it was good, so I'm just gonna throw it in there because. I'm going to put this in quotes, too. Cultural sensitivity. Okay. Hold up. We can't go there without talking about cultural competency. Okay. Is it cultural competency to engage with the most powerful people inside of the community that you're claiming you're helping the victims of crimes from? Exclusively? No. But would someone from the outside who doesn't really know the culture knows only what they have been told by the most powerful decide to list a source that they said to list? Possibly. And I think, you know, part of, part of this Yes, is that kind of something is better than nothing mentality. But I think part of it is when you are researching a group to which you do not belong, particularly an insular group to which you do not belong, And you are attempting to create materials for that group. And you, it's not necessarily thinking, oh, well, anything I do will be better than what they have because they have nothing. It's, Whatever I do, I have to make sure the powerful agree with it. Doesn't even necessarily mean they believe everything they've written or published or said. Okay. With that being said, is that kind of academic work helpful or harmful? Harmful. I mean, it's because it's, it always goes back to your goal. If your goal is to produce something that the powerful will find appealing or palatable, then it is, you know, by definition, going to have to in some way further marginalize the already marginalized because if the powerful didn't want people to be marginalized they wouldn't be marginalized so then what about the people who exit um, groups of people where 
they are marginalized, they are different cultures. And when you ask them, I legitimately had a conversation with somebody who said, and I quote, well, I'm a survivor, so I know how to um, counsel survivors. What would you say to them? They haven't had any formal training, any education, nothing. Specifically told me that. So their their only experience is their own personal experience of abuse. Uh-huh. They may be able to provide support as a peer. As as a peer to someone who has gone through something very, 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 very similar to what they have gone through. I've, I've seen survivors play um, growing up, we had a phrase, the, uh, like the oppression Olympics, the pain Olympics, the grief Olympics where it was almost like it was a competition. I had worse things happen to me than you did. You know, so sometimes survivors will minimize the experience of other survivors because it doesn't match what they went through and whether it's formal training or not if you have not learned about the the systemic institutionalized and normalized ways of not perpetuating, but continuing abuse. Yes, you have your lived experience, but it it's difficult to use that to support a survivor who had very different types of abuse unless you understand what commonalities they have and that that comes from learning um you know like never forget grew up in the south college football oh my that was it you know i i live in pennsylvania now and they they have one 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 college team that they get all excited about. That's it. So, you know, this idea of the in-state rivalries and, and the, the language within college football. Um, some of that carries over into professional football, like the red zone. Mm-hmm. I grew up 
red zone meant the opposing team was really, really close to scoring. Oh, my. Yeah, so I get up here. And I'm on a college campus as a faculty member. And they start talking about the red zone. And I'm like, what, what, what are we doing here? Red zone being the first couple weeks of the fall semester, especially, which is when the majority of sexual assault on campus occur. And thinking about the fact that, and this is within advocacy, we refer to sexual assault with the same terminology that we refer to a game. Uh-huh. Now, again, college football, like, reigns supreme. Very scary moments in the football game when the opposing team is about to get a touchdown or even a field goal. Uh-huh. And I will say this, if you've never watched football, college football in the South, you totally should sometime. <laughs> it is. Like, just for amusement thing. <laughs> it, it is, is a thing. thing. It is a real thing. I I vouch for this. My and my lived experience has exposed me to this. I vouch. Yep. Anyways, I am. Um, but I digress. No, but. I got up here and and they're all talking about Penn State, and I'm just like, y'all, y'all just y'all just don't know. And then I started hearing about the red zone. Uh-huh. And I will say I have I have not been on a college campus as a full-fledged staff member mm-hmm. in the south. But just this this mentality. Mhm. And I think I th- think I would probably go off on somebody on a college campus in the South who use that terminology. Even again, it's everywhere in advocacy. And it speaks to how normalized um rape culture is that like like same term uh-huh and and i think that when you are not within i hesitate to use the word system but it's the best word i've got right now but you're with when you're not within some advocacy system where like again I was my degree is in legal psychology 
my work at the, you know, the local DVSA agency, I was able to do that after I went through a 65-hour training, part on domestic violence, part on sexual assault, that was uh, developed by our two state agencies to remain able to volunteer um, as direct service working with clients, I have to do continuing education. Um, And that continuing education, like I've done trainings um, through the, the stalking resource center. I've done trainings through, um, the National Crime Vic- uh, Victims of Crime Library, like trainings through my local agency, trainings through agencies across the country that have made virtual trainings accessible. So it's not like you have to do a set mm-hmm. program beyond that 65 hour training. that training and that continuing education allows me to work with people who have experiences far different from mine. Yeah. And we're humans, like all of us. Do we sometimes get caught up like in our own perspectives? Sure. Well, I think but, everybody does. Yeah. It, it's but going when, to happen. But when somebody points out, and, and before you go into this further, I just want to point out, too, that I've had, like, training, multiple trainings from various agencies as well when it comes to mm-hmm. trauma and when it comes to how best to support trauma survivors, which I maintain those certifications by doing annual training. And that training I access in a variety of ways as well. However, I hold those certifications as a life coach. I'm not Mm -hmm. a psychologist. I'm just a life coach. But that still doesn't qualify me to be a counselor or a therapist because that's not what I am. My job is not to counsel people because I'm not a counselor. What I am is a life coach and I help people navigate their life in a way that works for them. That's it. If they have trauma, they need to talk to a trauma therapist. Actually, I think terminology is very interesting because um, the... The, the DVSA agencies, at least in PA, talk about options counseling. So we talk to people about the resources and their options. We are not counselors. We are not, <laughs> we are not therapists. There are some agencies who will contract with or hire psychologists and work out ways to provide therapy to their mm-hmm. clients but they are you know that's that's a whole separate thing 
and there is sometimes role confusion, I guess. Um, like people believe that those working for DBSA agencies are counselors. They're not. And, you know, their job title is advocate and they provide options counseling. And, you know, I think, you know, that, that key of training and accountability, you know, like however your training occurs, whether it is training you've sought out on your own or training that you've gotten by joining an organization like I did. Uh -huh. uh, training is, is vital. So here's the thing. So if I have a board who mm -hmm. watches the things that I do, mm -hmm. and if they bring something to me that I'm doing that they feel is inherently harmful, mm -hmm. And I respond by saying, okay, I hear you. But then proceed to justify it. Wouldn't I be like inherently refusing to hear concerns that are brought to me and potentially valid concerns? Yeah. I mean, it almost but, sounds um, like the situation you described is using, I'm going to call it the language of liberation, although that sounds a little melodramatic, but you know, when, when we tell someone, I hear you, I understand, I'm, I'm going to reflect, that makes it sound like you've heard them and have reflected. Your flip side of that was, but then you go do your own thing, which means you really have not heard them. Or right. And no. so if I don't change my actions now, however, if the board brings me something and says, hey, we want you, and, and this has happened where they said, we, we don't want you to do X, Y, and Z. At that point, the board has the ability to reflect and, and look into things and say, mm -hmm. no, this is unacceptable. It's harmful. And then that can change future actions to be better because we can only do better when we know better. And we can only know better when we actually hear concerns and when we actually read to comprehend and when we listen to hear. We can't do better if we pay lip service and then mm -hmm. go ahead and continue the harmful action, right? Or am I misunderstanding that? No, I mean, and, and that's... So if your board, board of an organization is your accountability and, you know, they come to you and they say, okay, X, Y, Z, you could actually Take in what they've said, reflected, perhaps do your own research. Mm -hmm. Set up another meeting with them and, and y'all could discuss the best path forward. Mm -hmm. Does that 
mean that everything your board says is an automatic, I'm going to do what my board says. No. Actually, no. But it does mean that you are being asked to reflect on your actions, to learn. And, and like I said, it should set up a conversation between um, you and the board or you and whoever has come to you to one, make sure you fully understand their concerns, make sure they fully understand what, um, what is motivating your actions and that you are both or all discussing kind of on the, on, uh, like a level playing field, like mm -hmm. you might give them the information you've been reading that has guided your actions. They might give you information. Um, I see a comment on the screen about, um, you know, instruments to determine which evidence is stronger. Like there is, there is not necessarily a single right answer. There is a, better answer based on higher quality research or stronger evidence. And so y'all might need to have a conversation to kind of work all that out. Yeah, that's true. Oh my and God. I'm kind of chuckling because what, what were my college students told when I started working in 2005 and for quite a while after? Don't drink too much. Don't go back to the guy's room. And don't, don't go to the bathroom alone. You know, don't drink don't. at all. But if you do drink, you know, and, and a, lot it, a lot of it was based on stuff that we now recognize as victim blaming. Like rather than telling a girl to use the buddy system and don't drink too much, tell the guy not to rape people. That took a long time for them to start actually making happen. And some of it, you know, it comes down to Making sure you're finding the best information out there um, to build your decisions on. And you might, you might have genuinely well-intentioned disagreements, but you need to be willing to sit down and really listen, hear, process, and reflect what others are telling you. You know, it, the answer is never just to tell your board to go take a long walk off short pier. In fact, the answer should never be that because you're supposed to be accountable to your board. board. Your board could tell you to do that. 
they could tell me to do that. That's not a great idea either. No, but in in terms of the of the structure of of nonprofits, it is the board's responsibility to hold the organization accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there are there are different types of boards for nonprofits. There are different types of boards for um, LLCs. There are different types of boards for for profit. So that's a very yeah. simplistic statement. But your board, any member of your board, should be able to come to you. And say, look, X, Y, Z. And your response should not be, be defensive. Your response should not be dismissive. Your response should be an open, honest, difficult, more likely, conversation about how you got to where you are and how you can move forward. So hypothetically, what if somebody told me that the board answers to me as the manager? I don't think I've ever heard of that particular organizational structure before i mean that that sounds like volunteers i feel i feel like that also sounds like perpetuating and reconsidering where it came from hypothetically it may sound and feel to me like it's recreating abusive systems to create an organization where the person who is the president or the manager or the CEO or whatever that purports to serve survivors of abuse from all walks and ways of life and then says, but the board should answer to you. To me, that would feel like recreating abusive systems. Because at that point, there is no board or federal, on a federal level, that oversees what so called advocates do. And that's actually, for me, that's, that's my biggest question with that, with that statement is okay. Like I said, that is not an organizational structure that I have seen or heard of that that the board answers to someone not on the board. Like I've I've seen some nonprofits where the president of the board basically functions as an executive director because it's a working board, but 
who is the person accountable to? None of us is perfect. And that's my question. And that's why I feel like it would be recreating abusive systems. I could see that. I mean, for me, my cynic as I am, my first question would be who has what training? Because this is going back to something is better than nothing. Advocacy is not like brushing your teeth. It's not like providing nursing care. It's not like providing certified nursing assistant care. It's not like being an EMT. It's not any of those things. But it does require, and maybe I should make the comparison to to brushing your teeth, because again, my sister's child had to learn to brush their teeth. It requires skills. Not and how did you? You, you got to be taught. And those skills, you don't acquire those skills just because you experienced abuse. I'm literally sitting here telling you I had to go acquire those skills from the trainings that I got, from the experiences that I had. I did not acquire those skills just because I experienced abuse. I acquired those skills because I sought out training and information and all of those things. Like, I will say this is on some level, when you are uh, EMT, um, EMT training does include certain levels of interacting with people who are in shocked and traumatized states. It helps you understand how your body responds to trauma, how your patients may actually respond in shock. So my question is, is like, where are people getting their training? And... And I, I would go so far as to say, like, if, if you have an organization where no one has been trained, and I, I am not talking about getting a college degree, I am not talking about getting an associate's degree, I'm not even necessarily talking about getting a certification. I did not pay for the 65 hour training that I did through my local DVSA agency. Now I then became their, their volunteer, but this is not advocacy is not something that you just wake up one day and say, today I'm an advocate. Even if you have survived abuse, you have survived your abuse. That does not necessarily prepare you to support people who have survived other types of abuse. You need training. You need support. You need someone who can come to you and say 
I understand that you are doing what you think is best, but X, Y, Z. Have you considered this? You know, and, and when that person says, have you considered this? You need to also understand that things are ever changing. And we know more today than we did yesterday. And we will know more tomorrow than we did today. And and so I think, and again, my background is in, I'm going to call it geographic-based. The idea of, of doing advocacy outside of a support system. Now, for me, that support system is the agency in my county, which receives funding from agencies in my state. You know, for you, you mentioned your board, you know. And And quite frankly, we receive funding through our Patreon and through trainings that I do and conduct as somebody who talks about Amish culture and some of the things that lead to misconceptions and mishandling of Amish abuse cases. So, you know, I, I can't fully what, you know, I can't put into words like, the manager of an advocacy organization should not be above the board. And, and by doing that, like, who provides that manager support? It, It can't be the board if the manager sees the board as subordinate, you know, so like my support comes from my peers. My support comes from my peers. I have a lot of peers that I work with and, you know, some of those peers can't openly safely work in this field, but they do privately work in this field and and they have qualifications some of them are i digress but you know i i have peer support because i have you know other volunteers even the full-time advocates like if if i get a call at one o'clock in the morning i am the advocate on call and even though i'm a volunteer the full-time and even part-time advocates they are people that I may need to work with because I'm going off call. And this person that I've spoken to is going to need one of them during business hours. You know, mm-hmm. the the executive director of the organization provides support for me. And sometimes that would be the metaphorical kicking the pants if i made a misstep Mm -hmm. the the board 
provide support because we are all accountable to the board, just as we are mm-hmm. accountable to our funders for meeting the goals that we put into the, the grants. Um, you know, we are accountable if donors provide us funds to do X, Y, Z, we are accountable. And so when, when you have a single person who says that their board is accountable to them, who are they accountable to? And doesn't and it kind of limit the scope of like, because part of what happens when you have a group of people who are like your board, for example, and who are um, holding you accountable and holding each other accountable, part of what happens is it, there's a broader look at the actions of the organization as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. when when there's a single person, my question also is, is, isn't that kind of myopic? Because you're, you're being very nearsighted in how you're evaluating the goals and how you're meeting those goals and whether you're conducting yourself in ways that uphold the values of your organization. Because there's only one person analyzing that versus a group of people. And so it's only one person's perspective. Um, with that being said, we should probably um, wrap this up. I do have two comments I would like to read out loud because I think it's, it's important. So Hinda says, exactly. I can only see here's what I went through. This is what I did. This was helpful slash not helpful. Here are some professional licensed resources. If you are needing help, make sure you find someone who is licensed, certified, or has and has the qualifications for this, whatever it is you need help for. Agreed. You want the person to know you support them. And they could have been through the exact same experience as you and did everything you did, consulted the same resources, and they get a completely different outcome. That's why you have to be careful what you say. Because the other part of that is, is when you become more trauma-informed, as somebody who works in this field, you will understand better that people experience trauma differently. And we all cope with trauma differently. And what may work for for person one may not work for person B. And when you pigeonhole people into a certain expected outcome or, you know, only this can work, you are literally taking away their ability to learn how to make decisions for their own lives. And you don't have the skills if you haven't received the training. You don't necessarily have the skills to be able to encourage people and to support people as they navigate through that to figure out how they want to learn how to make decisions and then actually employ those skills so that this person, your client, can actually make those decisions. Like when you're talking about doing the resource or the what is it called? Not not resource. Um, what what options, do options, options counseling. counseling? Options counseling. Yeah. Where do you acquire those skills? It takes skill to do options counseling without inserting your opinion on that. 
And quite frankly, it, it is infantilizing to survivors to repetitively, not even just to repetitively, but it adds layers of trauma to their already trauma, the trauma that already exists. It adds layers of trauma to the trauma that already exists because what you're doing is you're taking away their bodily autonomy when you make decisions for survivors. Well, I think related to that, the, the people you are working with do not necessarily need to know whether or not you are a survivor. They don't. And, and one of the things, you know, that, that we learned was appropriate disclosure. Uh-huh. And, you know, this idea of everyone being on their own healing journey and wherever you are on yours, if you are on one, is not necessarily where they are going to be. And so this, this idea of, learning to interact with others without making it about yourself. Oh, that part. Yes. That takes some practice. Yes. It does take practice. And I think another part is, is sometimes I've seen and observed people who like approach me with this whole idea of like, you're my family now. And I'm your family now. And sometimes that's really, really uncomfortable, quite frankly. I mean, it feels like people are trying to replace my family because I did lose my family of origin pretty much. Um, I don't think that's an appropriate response from any advocate. If you're a so-called advocate, like you, you should not be pretending to be family. You are a person who is in that person's corner for as long as you can be. You are not necessarily going to become family to the people that you serve. And it is crossing boundaries, violating boundaries with that survivor because that survivor is vulnerable. They may not be able to tell you that they feel uncomfortable, but I can tell you having experienced it as many as like 19 years ago, very uncomfortable. And even more so, I couldn't say no at the time. Advocacy is a profession. Whether you are paid for it or you are doing it on a volunteer basis, it is a profession. It is not a friendship and it is not a, a family relationship. It's a profession. Very much so. Very much so. And, and it's unprofessional and this is a really kind of extreme way of saying it, but your goal as an advocate should be that the person you are working with reaches the point where they never have to see you again. Yep. That you you have provided them with support to the the point that they are on the next step of their journey and they will never see you again. And that sounds extreme. Well, but if they have access to resources, they won't need to reach out to you. Right. 
and, and and again, in in my very geographic based, it is considered a conflict of interest. It is considered a dual relationship to try and be the advocate for a friend or family member. Mm-hmm. Now, I live in a small town, particularly when mm-hmm. you start talking about friendships. Sometimes this gets tricky. Mm-hmm. You know, but the idea that you become the friend of a survivor that you are attempting to advocate for. is just problematic because you should be trying to support them to outgrow you. Support them as they build their own support network where they are and access resources to where they're able to function without necessarily having interaction without you or with you. Like, you don't need to be present every day in the survivor's life. But inherently, I feel like if you were somebody who wants to serve survivors, I would highly encourage you to listen to survivors. I would highly encourage you to go get some training. And I would encourage you to do actual training that is for survivor advocacy. I would encourage you to learn about trauma and all of the different effects of trauma. Learn about communication skills. Build those skills. Practice them up. Before you try to set up safe houses, for example, but that's a whole other topic and we need to um, wrap this up. Got any last parting words, Tara? Thank you, everyone, for your comments. Yeah, thank you for coming. I'd like to remind you, if you're listening to this, um, this podcast was brought to you by the Patreon subscribers and the Misfit Amish and myself and Tara. Thank you for being a guest and giving so much of your time. We appreciate you. And until next time, see y'all later. Thank you.